When we talk about Jesus with folks, some of us get a little nervous. What are they going to think of me? What are they going to think about Jesus? And as is so often the case, something just perfect comes along. This week, JL shared an email with me that I thought, that's going to fit perfect with my sermon. Tom Rayner, the president of Lifeway Christian Resources, and his researchers over the past decade have conducted research among non-Christians to find out what non-Christians think about Christians, what non-Christians think about the church, and what they believe and why. And he said, there's some surprising results that we need to consider, and I want to share those with you now. And these are statements, like a summary type statement, and then I'll give you a quote, and I've got seven of them for you. The first one that non-Christians say is that it seems like Christians are against more things than they are for. One person was quoted as saying, it just seems to me that Christians are mad at the world and mad at each other. They're just negative. They seem unhappy. I have no desire to be like them or stay upset all the time. If you are kind of that kind of sourpuss Christian, God bless you and God forgive you. But there are some of us that may act that way that bear the name of Christ. You and I have met them. You and I may have been them. The second one is that I would like to develop a friendship with a Christian. One respondent was quoted as saying, I'm really interested in what they believe and how they carry out their beliefs. I just wish I could find a Christian who would be willing to spend time with someone like me. That somehow, as someone who didn't know Christ, they felt less than. Maybe because of the way some Christians get all judgmental and self-righteous and stuff like that. And they wanted a Christian to have a genuine friendship with them. A third item, non-Christian said, I would like to learn about the Bible from a Christian. One respondent was quoted as saying, the Bible really fascinates me, but I don't want to go to a stuffy and legalistic church to learn about it. It would be nice if a Christian invited me to study the Bible in his home or in a place like Starbucks. Not too long ago, I met a Catholic And, uh, well, we meet lots of Catholics, but this Catholic said to me, you're a Baptist pastor. Can we talk about the Bible together? I said, sure. When do you want to meet? And uh, we met over Mexican food, of all things, and talked for two hours. The waiter kept refilling our drinks, going, are you guys going to leave sooner or later? But he had so many questions about the Bible, and he just wanted somebody to talk to. The fourth one is, I don't see much difference in the way Christians live compared to others. Someone said, I really can't tell what a Christian believes because he doesn't seem much different than the other people I know. The only exception would be Mormons. They seem to take their beliefs seriously. Now, that's just the opinion of one person. But you and I know folks who are believers in Jesus, and other than the fact that they might attend church on Sunday morning, The rest of their life doesn't look or sound any different than anyone else we know at work or in our family. That's hypocrisy, and that's a problem, and that's true of some. The fifth answer was, I wish I could learn to be a better husband, wife, dad, mom, etc. from a Christian. One person said, my wife is threatening to divorce me, and I think she means it this time. My neighbor is a Christian, and he seems to have it all together. I'm swallowing my pride and I'm asking him for help. Have you ever considered the fact that as believers in Jesus, we do know God's truth? And we have, not because we're better than anybody else, but because we understand God's grace, 
the ability to speak God's truth in a way that can be life-changing to others. A sixth answer was that some Christians try to act like they have no problems. Um, Yeah, someone said, Harriet works in my department. She's one of those Christians who seems to have a mask on. I would respect her more if she didn't put on such an act. I know better. Don't be a phony, baloney believer. Be genuine. Be transparent. I don't know about you. That's one thing I appreciate about Vasil. He's a very smart man and a hardworking man, but he is himself, and he's going to tell you that. And he's going to be gracious about it. Number seven there was, I wish a Christian would take me to his or her church. A person said, I would really like to visit a church, but I'm not particularly comfortable going by myself. What is weird that I'm 32 years old and I've never had a Christian invite me to his or her church. You know, the number one reason people attend church who are non-church is when a friend or family member invites them. We're going to talk about that more this year as a church and seek to make inviting our friends, our neighbors and people we make the norm for our church because We've got the truth of God that changes life, and we've got to share it for, with them. And we'll talk about that more, but what their studies found was that a pattern, that non-Christians want to interact with Christians, and they want to see Christians act their actions match their belief. They want Christians to be real. He said in one study they conducted, they found that only 5% of non-Christians were antagonistic or opposed to Christianity. Most of them were open and wanted to have a relationship with the believers in Jesus. Friends, we have an invitation from the world. And so I want to take up the topic today from John chapter 7, that this question. When you introduce people to Jesus, what happens? How do they respond? And what we see in John chapter 7, though it is a long passage of Scripture that we'll walk through verse by verse, is how people react You notice verse 43, we put it on your outline and we'll put it up on the screen. That says, thus they were divided with Jesus. That they were divided because of Jesus. That because of who he is and because of what he said, others were divided in how to respond to him. So as Christ followers, we should talk about Jesus to others regularly. You have the Holy Spirit. You can find a way, kindly and graciously, even winsomely, to share your faith. So when you do, what reaction should you expect? Well, let's go to our scripture here and read the first four verses. It says, After this, Jesus went around in Galilee, purposefully staying away from Judea, because the Jews there were waiting to take his life. But when the Jewish Feast of Tabernacles was near, Jesus' brothers said to him, You ought to leave here and go to Judea so that your disciples may see the miracles you do. No one who wants to be a public figure acts in secret. Since you are doing these things, show yourself to the world. For even his own brothers did not believe in him. Pray with me. Our Father in heaven, as we open your word this morning, We always pray that you open our minds, that we would understand and that our hearts would perceive what you are speaking to us about how we ought to live when we consider speaking of Jesus and sharing his life with those that you've placed in our lives. So God, thank you for an example from Scripture 
of the reactions of people when Jesus is presented to them. And help us not to be discouraged, but encouraged, we pray. It's in Jesus' name. And everyone said, Amen. So what kind of reactions can we expect when we share Jesus with others? What we're seeing in the Scripture, of course, is Jesus Himself. But when you bear a witness of Jesus by your actions, by your words, you should expect the same sort of reaction. You are a Christ follower if you have committed your life to follow Jesus and are a believer, a Christian. And therefore, you ought to get the same actions and words and reactions as Jesus did. So the first point on your outline there is that some will doubt you, though they know you. So the first point on your outline is that some will doubt you, though they know you. You'd think that Jesus' brothers would have had it figured out. I mean, these were his half-brothers, if you will. We know that Mary, and by God's providence, was uh, uh, Jesus was immaculately conceived within her. But then Mary uh, had... Joseph as her husband, and Joseph and Mary had other children. So Jesus' younger brothers is who it's speaking of here. And we learn more about one of them in particular, James, uh, later in the Bible. But they, at this point, don't believe who Jesus is. They know that he does miracles, and they know that he's like a big deal. And it's almost like they're making fun of him. Since you want to be a public figure, you better go to Jerusalem. But the Scripture says, as John wrote it under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, that Jesus didn't want to go yet because he knew the Jewish leaders wanted to kill him. And so he says to his brothers, I'm not going. You go ahead. We'll get to that in a moment there uh, as we come along. Look in verse 6. We'll just read it now. Therefore, Jesus told them, the right time has not yet come for uh, you Excuse me, for you, any time is right. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify what uh, it does is evil. You go to the feast. I am not yet going up to the feast because for me, the right time has not yet come. Having said this, he stayed in Galilee. Notice what it says in verse 10. However, after his brothers had left the feast, he went also, not publicly, but in secret. We have to ask ourselves a question. Was Jesus telling a fib there? Was he telling a lie? No. He said, it's not yet come for me to go. And so he was going later and he sent his brothers ahead. But let's come back to the point. The point was that his brothers doubted who he was. We've already got it up there. Let's go ahead and say the second point. That some will keep an eye on you. When you speak words about Jesus... When you identify yourself as a follower of Christ, when people know that about you because they're your family member, because they're your neighbor, because they're your friend, because they're your coworker, whenever you've outed yourself, so to speak, as a Christian, from that point forward, you better know that people are going to keep their eye on you. And it may not seem like they're keeping their eye on you, but they will. Parents, you know how it is when you think your children aren't paying attention, but they hear every word? Yeah, I know how it is because, you know, I think some of you aren't paying attention to a sermon. And then you're like, oh, Pastor Aaron, when you said such and such today. And I'm like, I thought you were sleeping. (laughs) Okay, maybe that wasn't that funny. Look at what it says in verse 11. Now, at the feast of the Jews, the Jews were watching for him and asking, where is that man? He hadn't arrived yet. 
And so John transitions the story to Jerusalem where they're at the Feast of the Tabernacles and they're keeping their eye out for him. They know, hey, Jesus is a good Jew, so he's going to have to show up to the feast. And when he shows up to the feast, then we'll have him. They're keeping their eyes out for him. And it's not necessarily that your friends or your coworkers or your neighbors are keeping an eye out for you because they want to see you fall or because they want to do bad to you or anything like that. But trust me, they're keeping their eyes on you. How you live. Just like we heard the reports from the survey Is your life any different than anyone else? Is it not just that you attend church on Sunday morning, that you got a Jesus fish stuck on the back of your car and you wear a cross around your neck and you listen to Christian radio, but do you act and react to pressure points and situations different than the other people in your office, different than the other people in your family? Would people know that? Well, our first point was that they doubted who he was. The second point was that they were watching out for him. Our third point on your outline is that some are going to talk about you. Some are going to talk about you. Look at verse 12. Among the crowds, there was widespread whispering about him. Some said he's a good man. Others replied, no, he deceives the people. Jesus had done enough miracles already and been about his ministry enough already and taught enough already that folks had developed opinions. There was no CNN. There was no Fox News. There were no newspapers and NPR and Twitter and Facebook or any of those sort of things. But through word of mouth, people knew and had opinions about Jesus. And some thought, he's a good man. They weren't declaring whether he was the Christ yet or not. But they thought he was a good man because he was doing good things. Others thought that, no, he was being deceptive. So whatever the reasons were, we can't go into that there. We just see on the face of it here and we compare it to our lives. When you live your life as a believer in front of others, some people are going to think you're a good person. Maybe that's what they think the hallmark of a follower of Jesus is. You're a good person. You do the right thing. And they should. Others, however, will have their arms folded and look at you with a little suspicion I think that guy's trying to earn his way to heaven. Or I think that guy's trying to just act like he's better than me. Or I think that guy's trying to get in with good with the boss. And he's just using Christianity to kind of push his way ahead and manipulate things. And I won't use any ugly terms for that. People will always have opinions about you. You can't change people's opinions of you. You can live in such a way that they have evidence to change them themselves. And you can't argue them out of it. They're always going to talk. So let's look at verse 13. Verse 13 says, But no one would say anything publicly about him for fear of the Jews. Remember it said in verse 12 that they were whispering about Jesus. They didn't want to say it in public. But... They would certainly say it in private conversations. But verse 13 gets us to our fourth point about Jesus and that some will fear others. There's going to be doubters. There's going to be talkers. There's going to be watchers. And some, when you present yourself as a believer in Jesus, they're going to be afraid of you. Now, granted, if you're a self-righteous, beating people over the head with your Bible, egotistical uh, jerk of a Christian, yeah, I wouldn't blame them for being afraid of you. But even if you're as meek as a lamb, even if you're as wise and gentle as a dove, 
and the way that you conduct yourself demonstrates the best of Christianity. There's some people that aren't going to know how to take you, and you might get some weird reactions from them, and they'll be based on fear because they haven't been around believers and they don't know how to handle believers in Jesus and somebody who honestly follows Jesus. Let's go on and read there in verse 14 and following. So not until halfway through the feast did Jesus go up to the temple courts and begin to teach. So he actually did show up halfway through the week-long Feast of the Tabernacles, and he begins teaching in the courts. And the Jews, when it says the Jews with a capital J there, it means the Jewish leaders, were amazed and asked, how did this man get such learning without having studied? So remember, there's going to be all sorts of reactions. There's going to be talk. There's going to be fear. And that leads us to our fifth point, that some wondered who Jesus is. We would say was in past tense. That's the fifth point on your outline there, that some wondered who Jesus is. They're going to be honest to goodness, concern, and wonder. That's why I read you the research that Tom Rayner and his staff put together interviewing thousands of non-Christians. That there were honestly people that said, I want to know more about following Jesus. I want to know more about how the Bible says to live my life. I want somebody to invite me to church. I want someone to have a conversation with me about Christ. They're wondering about our Jesus. All we got to do is talk about him. They've seen our lives as different. They've heard our words as different. So let's take the conversation to the next level. Let's share a verbal witness. Not just live differently, not just talk differently, but actually have conversations with people that invite them to consider the truth of Scripture and invite them, is Jesus the Son of God? And how does your life stack up on a scale of righteousness and unrighteousness and right and wrong? Even according to their own sense of morality, people would have to admit that they have failed. And so you look at verse 14 there and verse 15. They wondered how Jesus got to know as much as he did. Notice verse 16. Jesus answered, my teaching is not my own. It comes from him who sent me. Verse 17. If anyone chooses to do God's will, he will find out whether my teaching comes from God or whether I speak on my own. Jesus is speaking somewhat still in veiled references here because his time's not yet come. He doesn't want the Jews just to outright kill him yet. And so he's saying, if you're going to believe me, God will teach you. God will show you. Look at verse 18. He who speaks on his own does so to gain honor for himself, but he who works for the honor of the one who sent him, is a man of truth. There is nothing false about him. Now, we know Jesus is speaking about working for God, but they probably didn't have that picture figured out yet. Verse 19, Has not Moses given you the law, yet not one of you keeps the law? Why are you trying to kill me? Now Jesus is getting personal. There's going to be a change in the tenor of the conversation that happens right here that we don't necessarily get, but that's why I'm changing my pace and raising the way that I'm speaking because he just insulted them. He said, you guys that think you're so perfect and always keep the law just right and hold yourself up as an example for everybody else, you're not even keeping the law. And the number one example I'm going to give you is that you're secretly plotting to kill me, which everybody knows murder is a sin. So what happens next? Well, that leads us to verse 20. Verse 20, 
They get mad at him. (laughs) You are demon-possessed. The crowd answered, not just the Jewish leaders. Everybody's screaming at him. You've lost it, dude. You're crazy. Who cares about the miracles and all this teaching you say? And then they answer, who's trying to kill you? Remember, it's the crowd. They don't know that the Jewish leaders are trying to do it. That leads us to our sixth reaction. Some people doubt. Some people watch. Some people talk. Some people fear. Some people wonder. The sixth one is some will think that you and Jesus are crazy. Have you ever had that reaction? I'm sure some of you have got some stories you could tell me. Where you have spoken a witness of Jesus or you've done something and somebody's like, why in the world would you do that? Are you crazy? You know, you give something sacrificially. You meet a need. You spend yourself. You spend your time. And people just don't understand it. And they think you are flat crazy. Isn't it great? I mean, when people consider you crazy for the right reasons. You know, I've had, well, I guess I've given people reason to consider me crazy for other reasons that are right as well. You probably have too. But the fact is true, and Scripture bears it out, that when you speak the truth, particularly go back to our context here, when you speak the honest-to-goodness, hard, people don't really want to hear it, they'd rather ignore it, truth, some folks are going to think you're crazy. Some of them might think you're crazy with the, why would you say that out loud? Others will think you're crazy, like, why would you say that at all? Where would you get off thinking that? But that's a reaction to Jesus. That's a reaction to us when we present Jesus. Let's go on in your scripture. Verse 21. Jesus said to them, I did one miracle, and you all are astonished. Yet because Moses gave you circumcision, though actually it did not come from Moses, but from the patriarchs, you circumcised a child on the Sabbath. Now, if a child can be circumcised on the Sabbath, so the law of Moses may not be broken, why are you angry for me for healing a whole man on the Sabbath? So, what's he say? Stop judging by mere appearances and make a right judgment. Jesus is calling them out to think. Go on in verse 25. At the Point At that point, some of the people of Jerusalem began to ask, isn't this the man they were trying to kill? So they're finally, oh, yeah, we heard they were going to kill some guy. Maybe this is him. They're putting two and two together, right? Verse 26, here he is speaking publicly, and they're not saying a word to him, having the authorities uh, really concluded that he is the Christ, i.e., if he wasn't the Christ... They would kill him, but if he is the Christ, they're not going to kill him because they believe he might be the Messiah. So now the crowd is beginning to turn, and the crowd is beginning to think, maybe this is Jesus for real, verse 27. But we know where this man comes from. When the Christ comes, no one will know where he comes from. They're thinking, well, he came from Nazareth. We all know that the Christ is supposed to come from Bethlehem. They don't know the part of the story that he was born in Bethlehem, went to Egypt, then went back to Nazareth. They don't know that. So they're making judgments based on what they know. That leads us to point number seven. And this one's a little more hopeful. The seventh point and the seventh reaction for people when they consider Jesus is that they will consider the facts. Some will consider the facts. 
These folks now were not antagonistic towards Jesus. These folks were trying to figure out Jesus. This was genuine questioning. And these folks were saying, hey, wait a second. Maybe the Jewish leaders, our leaders, are wrong. And maybe this guy is the Christ. But then there's that, but wait a second. Isn't he from Nazareth? He speaks with the accent of a Galilean. We know that the Christ is supposed to come from Bethlehem right next door to us. And, uh, you know, this just didn't seem right. But they're considering the facts. Friends, when you share Jesus, with others, there's going to take some time. And it's going to be a process almost like a funnel where they're far away from God and they don't even believe there is a God to they accept that there is a God to they accept that there is Jesus and they accept Jesus as God's son. Then they accept that they are sinners and then they accept Jesus as their personal savior for their sins. That's the point you're leading them to. But this process of a funnel, of a relationship, of drawing someone, you're going to have to fill that in depending on the person some more than others, with lots of facts. They're going to have to read the Bible for themselves. They're going to have to see the Bible as true in your life for themselves. And you need to be a genuine witness in front of them so they see that this is a real deal. Now, for sake of time, we're going to have to jump ahead here. And that's your eighth point. That some will seek to control you. When Jesus presents himself this way, look at the reaction in verse 30. At this they tried to seize him, but no one laid a hand on him because his time still not had come. So the Jewish leaders had their temple guards try to seize Jesus to get him to shut up. He was getting dangerous. They were trying to control him by taking away his voice. Skip down to verse 32. The Pharisees heard the crowd whispering such things about him. Then the chief priests and the Pharisees sent the temple guards to arrest him. Again, two times in three verses, they're after Jesus to try to control him, to shut him up so he can't say anything else. People will try to do that to you. When you witness about Jesus, either by intimidation or manipulation or just throwing a company policy at you or something like that, that you can can't say anything about religion of any kind, particularly about Christianity, they're going to try to control you. That's the way of the world when it's confronted by truth or something it doesn't understand or want to understand. But let's look at your ninth point. Some folks are going to be confused. Between these two verses in which they're trying to seize Jesus and shut him up, You see that some folks will be confused. Not necessarily in a bad way, like they don't get it confused, but look at verse 31. Still many in the crowd put their faith in him. So they did believe Jesus, but look at what it says next. They said, when the Christ comes, will he do more miraculous signs than this man? So they put their faith in him, but as a miracle worker, not as the Messiah. That's what we have to read. It's one single verse there talking about the same group of people. But look down to verse 40. On hearing his words, some of the people said, Surely this man is the prophet. In other words, like Elijah, the forerunner to Jesus, they're thinking he's John the Baptist, not Jesus. So they're confused, but they're trying to put together the facts they know, and they don't have the whole story. You've met people like that. That they have questions about Christianity, they have questions about the Bible, but because their church background may be varied or because what they know about theology comes from memes and short little posts on Facebook that heaven knows whether they're orthodox or heretical in their theology, they come at you with all sorts of crazy stuff and you have to say, whoa, whoa, time out. Where did you learn that? 
All right, let's go to the Bible and see what the Bible says about that and make them a case from Scripture not based on one verse but multiple verses and say, this is what the Bible says. You have to decide whether you're going to believe it or not. So confusion is not necessarily a bad thing because it's questioning, because it's seeking. Let's get to your tenth and final point. Your tenth and final reaction to Jesus is that some will believe Jesus is the Savior. I almost put a capital T, the, there, right? But we got the capital S, Savior. That He is the Savior. When you present Jesus to your friends, whether that's a one-time thing or whether it's through years or even decades that you've been living for Christ, talking to them about Christ, any opportunity you can, you speak about the Bible and you kindly, based on your relationship with them, share a witness with them again and again and again. Sooner or later, folks are going to believe in Jesus. Look at verse 41. Remember in verse 40, it said, On hearing His words, Some of the people said, surely this man is the prophet, the forerunner to Jesus. But verse 41, others said, he is the Christ. They knew that Jesus was God's son. By grace, through faith, they had trusted that Jesus was the Christ. Friends, when you... Live a life as a Christ follower. And when you share a verbal witness with people, some will doubt, some will watch out for you, some will talk and gossip about you, some will be fearful of you, some will wonder about you, some will think you're crazy, some will want to consider the facts, some will just be confused, but they're still considering. But others, and many, will eventually believe. So in the face of such reactions, what should you continue to do? That's your question on your sermon outline. In the face of all these varied reactions, 10 of them there, I don't know how many of them you would say are positive or not, but in the face of such reactions, what should you continue to do? Anybody want to tell me? Preach and live for Jesus. Keep being you as a follower of Jesus. Remember, I've said it before. You're the only Jesus many people ever know. You're the only Bible many people ever read. And that you are in your life among the people God put you in to be a witness to them. So continue to live for Jesus. Continue to speak the truth of God's word, which means you've got to read God's word daily or engage it by hearing it so that it's in you, so that it comes out of you, so that you're influenced by asking the Holy Spirit to help you resist sin and temptation and resist acting like the world when you're pressed hard and when you want to get angry or upset that you might be like Jesus and that you continue to live for Him. We've got our Scripture memory verse of the month as the last thing today. And it comes from 2 Timothy. We start our sermon series there next week. To be continued is the name of the series. But read it with me. 2 Timothy 1.7 For the Spirit of God gave us, does not make us timid, but gives us power, love, and self-discipline. 2 Timothy one seven. Let's pray together. God, our Father, we thank you that not only do you encourage us to share witnesses of Jesus, but you show us exactly how people are going to react to us when we do. And we thank you, Father, that you tell us that we won't be filled with 
timidity. Well, naturally we are. But that you give us power, love, and self-discipline. You give us the ability to keep living a life for Christ. You give us the ability to keep speaking the truth of God. So that all those whose lives touch ours might have a witness of Christ and might have the opportunity to trust Him as their Savior as well. So, Father, I speak on behalf of each and every one in this room who are already believers in Jesus that we thank you for your love for us, that you chose us. And I pray, Father, for each of us that as we begin this new year, we would be encouraged and strengthened to be witnesses of yours by the way we live, what we say, and how we do it, and how we say it. And Father, we pray for the person here who may not yet have trusted Christ, but realizes that they are sinners, that they would engage in a conversation with a Christ follower, that they'd ask those honest questions and seek the facts and come closer. Or maybe if today's the day, that they would profess their belief in Him as their Savior and Lord. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.